0: Section sixty two of London Labour and the London Poor, volume two by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Effects of Casual Labour in General. Having now pointed out the causes of casual labour, I proceed to set forth its effects. All casual labour, as I have said, is necessarily uncertain labour and wherever uncertainty exists there can be no foresight or providence had the succession of events in nature been irregular had it been ordained by the creator that similar causes under similar circumstances should not be attended with similar effects it would have been impossible for us to have had any knowledge of the future or to have made any preparations concerning it had the seasons followed each other fitfully Had the sequences in the external world been variable instead of invariable, and what are now termed constants, from the regularity of their succession, been changed into inconstants, what provision could even the most prudent of us have made? Where all was dark and unstable, we could only have guessed, instead of reasoned, as to what was to come, and who would have deprived himself of present enjoyments to avoid future privations, which could appear neither probable nor even possible to him. Providence, therefore, is simply the result of certainty, and whatever tends to increase our faith in the uniform sequences of outward events, as well as our reliance on the means we have of avoiding the evils connected with them, necessarily tends to make us more prudent. Where the means of sustenance and comfort are fixed, the human being becomes conscious of what he has to depend upon, and if he feel assured that such means may fail him in old age or in sickness, and be fully impressed with the certainty of suffering from either, he will immediately proceed to make some provision against the time of adversity or infirmity. If, however, his means be uncertain, abundant at one time and deficient at another, A spirit of speculation or gambling with the future will be induced and the individual gets to believe in luck and fate as the arbiters of his happiness rather than to look upon himself as the architect of his fortunes trusting to chance rather than his own powers and foresight to relieve him at the hour of necessity the same result will necessarily ensue if from defective reasoning powers the ordinary course of nature be not sufficiently apparent to him or if being in good health he grow too confident upon its continuance and either from this or other causes is led to believe that death will overtake him before his powers of self-support decay the ordinary effects of uncertain labour then are to drive the labourers to improvidence recklessness and pauperism even in the classes which we do not rank among labourers as for instance authors artists musicians actors uncertainty or irregularity of employment and remuneration produces a spirit of wastefulness and carelessness the steady and daily accruing gains of trade and of some of the professions form a certain and staple income while in other professions Where a large sum may be realised at one time, and then no money be earned until after an interval, incomings are rapidly spent, and the interval is one of suffering. This is part of the very nature, the very essence, of the casualty of employment, and the delay of remuneration. The past privation gives a zest to the present enjoyment while the present enjoyment renders the past privation faint as a remembrance and unimpressive as a warning. Want of providence, writes Mr. Porter, on the part of those who live by the labour of their hands and whose employments so often depend upon circumstances beyond their control, is a theme which is constantly brought forward by many whose lot in life has been cast beyond the reach of want it is indeed greatly to be wished for their own sakes that the habit were general among the labouring classes of saving some part of their wages when fully employed against less prosperous times but it is difficult for those who are placed in circumstances of ease to estimate the amount of virtue that is implied in this self-denial it must be a hard trial for one who has recently perhaps seen his family enduring want to deny them the small amount of indulgences which are at the best of times placed within their reach it is easy enough for men in smooth circumstances to say the privation is a man's own fault since to avoid it he has but to apportion the sum he may receive in a lump over the interval of non recompense which he knows will follow such a course as this experience and human nature have shown not to be easy perhaps with a few exceptions, not to be possible. It is the starving and not the well-fed man that is in danger of surfeiting himself. When pestilence or revolution are rendering life and property casualties in a country, the same spirit of improvident recklessness breaks forth. In London, on the last visitation of the plague, in the reign of Charles II, a sort of plague club, indulged in the wildest excesses in the very heart of the pestilence. To these orgies no one was admitted who had not been bereft of some relative by the pest. In Paris, during the reign of terror in the First Revolution, the famous guillotine club was composed of none but those who had lost some near relative by the guillotine. When they met for their half-frantic revels, everyone wore some symbol of death, breast-pins in the form of guillotines, rings with death's heads, and such like. The duration of their own lives these guillotine clubbists knew to be uncertain, not merely in the ordinary uncertainty of nature, but from the character of the times, and this feeling of the jeopardy of existence, from the practice of violence and bloodshed, wrought the effects I have described. Life was more than naturally casual. When the famine was at the worst in Ireland, it was remarked in the Cork Examiner that in that city there never had been seen more street larking or street gambling among the poor lads and young men who were really starving. This was a natural result of the casualty of labour and the consequent casualty of food. Persons, it should be remembered, do not insure houses or shops that are doubly or trebly hazardous. gamble on the uncertainty mr porter in his progress of the nation cites a fact bearing immediately upon the present subject the formation of a canal which has been in progress during the last five years in the north of ireland this was written in eighteen forty seven has afforded steady employment to a portion of the peasantry who before that time were suffering all the evils so common in that country which result from the precariousness of employment. Such work as they could previously get came at uncertain intervals, and was sought by so many competitors that the remuneration was of the scantiest amount. In this condition of things the men were improvident to recklessness. Their wages, insufficient for the comfortable sustenance of their families, were wasted in procuring for themselves a temporary forgetfulness of their misery at the whiskey shop and the men appeared to be sunk into a state of hopeless degradation. From the moment, however, that work was offered to them which was constant in its nature, and certain in its duration, and on which their weekly earnings would be sufficient to provide for their comfortable support, men who had been idle and dissolute were converted into sober, hard-working labourers, and proved themselves kind and careful husbands and fathers and it is stated as a fact that notwithstanding the distribution of several hundred pounds weekly in wages the whole of which must be considered as so much additional money placed in their hands the consumption of whisky was absolutely and permanently diminished in the district during the comparatively short period in which the construction of this canal was in progress some of the most careful labourers men who most probably before then never knew what it was to possess five shillings at any one time, saved sufficient money to enable them to emigrate to Canada. There can hardly be a stronger illustration of the blessing of constant and the curse of casual labour. We have competence and frugality as the results of one system, poverty and extravagance as the results of the other, and among the very same individuals. In the evidence given by Mr. Galloway, the engineer, before a parliamentary committee, he remarks that, when employers are competent to show their men that their business is steady and certain, and when men find that they are likely to have permanent employment, they have always better habits and more settled notions, which will make them better men and better workmen, and will produce great benefits to all who are interested in their employment moreover even if payment be assured to a working-man regularly but deferred for long intervals so as to make the returns lose all appearance of regularity he will rarely be found able to resist the temptation of a tavern and perhaps a long-continued carouse or of some other extravagance to his taste when he receives a month's dues at once i give an instance of this in the following statement For some years after the Peace of 1815, the staffs of the militias were kept up, but not in any active service. During the war, the militias performed what are now the functions of the regular troops in the Three Kingdoms, their stations being changed more frequently than those of any of the regular regiments at the present day. Indeed, they only differed from the regulars in name. There was the same military discipline, and the sole difference was that the militiamen who were balloted for periodically could not by the laws regulating their embodiment be sent out of the united kingdom for purposes of warfare the militias were embodied for twenty eight days training once in four years seldom less after the peace and the staff acted as the drill sergeants they were usually steady orderly men working at their respective crafts when not on duty after the militias disembodiment and some who had not been brought up to any handicraft turned out perhaps from their military habits of early rising and orderliness very good gardeners both on their own account and as assistants in gentlemen's grounds no few of them saved money yet these men with very few exceptions when they received a month's pay fooled away a part of it in tippling and idleness to which they were not at all addicted when attending regularly to their work with its regular returns if they got into any trouble in consequence of their carousing it was looked upon as a sort of legitimate excuse why you see sir it was the twenty-fourth the twenty-fourth of each month being the pension day the thoughtless extravagance of sailors when on their return to port they receive in one sum the wages they have earned by severe toil amidst storms and dangers during a long voyage, I need not speak of. It is a thing well known. These soldiers and seamen cannot be said to have been casually employed, but the results were the same as if they had been so employed. The money came to them in a lump, at so long an interval as to appear uncertain, and was consequently squandered i may cite the following example as to the effects of uncertain earnings upon the household outlay of labourers who suffer from the casualties of employment induced by the season of the year in the long fine days of summer the little daughter of a working brickmaker, i was told used to order chops and other choice dainties of a butcher saying please sir father don't care for the price just anow but he must have his chops good line chop, sir, and tender, please, cause he's a brickmaker in the winter, it was, oh, please, sir, here's a fourpenny bit, and you must send father something cheap, he don't care what it is, so long as it's cheap. it's winter, and he hasn't no work, sir, cause he's a brickmaker. I have spoken of the tendency of casual labour to induce intemperate habits in confirmation of this, I am enabled to give the following account. As to the increase of the sale of malt liquor in the metropolis consequent upon wet weather the account is derived from the personal observations of a gentleman long familiar with the brewing trade in connection with one of the largest houses in short i may state that the account is given on the very best authority there are nine large brewers in london of these the two firms transacting the greatest extent of business supply daily 1,000 barrels each firm to their customers. The seven others among them dispose altogether of 3,000 barrels daily. All these 5,000 barrels a day are solely for town consumption, and this may be said to be the average supply the year through, but the public-house sale is far from regular. After a wet day, the sale of malt liquor, principally beer, porter, to the metropolitan retailers is from 500 to 1,000 barrels more than when a wet day has not occurred. That is to say, the supply increases from 5,000 barrels to five thousand five hundred and six thousand. Such of the publicans as keep small stocks go the next day to their brewers to order a further supply. Those who have better furnished sellers may not go for two or three days after, but the result is the same. The reason for this increased consumption is obvious. When the weather prevents workmen from prosecuting their respective callings in the open air, they have recourse to drinking to pass away the idle time. Anyone who has made himself familiar with the habits of the working classes has often found them crowding a public house during a hard rain, especially in the neighbourhood of new buildings or any public open-air work. The street-sellers themselves prevented from plying their trades outside, are busy in such times in the publics, offering for sale braces, belts, hose, tobacco boxes, nuts of different kinds, apples, and so on. A bargain may then be struck for so much and a half pint of beer, and so the consumption is augmented by the trade in other matters. Now, taking 750 barrels as the average of the extra sale of beer in consequence of wet weather, we have a consumption beyond the demands of the ordinary trade in malt liquor, of 27,000 gallons, or 216,000 pints. This, at tuppence a pint, is 3,000 pounds for a day's needless and often prejudicial outlay, caused by the casualty of the weather and the consequent casualty of labour. A censor of morals might say that these men should go home under such circumstances, but their homes may be at a distance, and may present no great attractions. The single men among them may have no homes, merely sleeping-places, and even the most prudent may think it advisable to wait a while under shelter, in hopes of the weather improving, so that they could resume their labour, and only an hour or so be deducted from their wages besides there is the attraction to the labourer of the warmth discussion freedom and excitement of the public-house that the great bulk of the consumers of this additional beer are of the classes i have mentioned is i think plain enough from the increase being experienced only in that beverage the consumption of gin being little affected by the same means indeed the statistics showing the ratio of beer and gin drinking are curious enough were this the place to enter into them the most gin as a general rule being consumed in the most depressed years it is a fact worth notice said a statistical journal entitled facts and figures published in eighteen forty one as illustrative of the tendency of the times of pressure to increase spirit-drinking that whilst under the privations of last year eighteen forty the poorer classes paid £2,628,286 tax for spirits. In 1836, a year of the greatest prosperity, the tax on British spirits amounted only to £2,390,188. So true is it that to impoverish is to demoralise. The numbers who imbibe, in the course of a wet day, these 750 barrels, cannot of course be ascertained, but the following calculations may be presented. The class of men I have described rarely have spare money, but if known to a landlord, they probably may obtain credit until the Saturday night. Now putting their extra beer drinking on wet days, for on fine days there is generally a pint or more consumed daily per working man. Putting, I say, the extra potations at a pot, quart, each man, we find 108,000 consumers out of 2 million people, or, discarding the women and children, not 1 million, a number doubling and trebling and quadrupling the male adult population of many a splendid continental city. Of the data I have given, I may repeat, no doubt can be entertained nor as it seems to me can any doubt be entertained that the increased consumption is directly attributable to the casualty of labour the great exhibition i am informed produced a very small effect on the consumption of porter and according to the official returns one hundred and sixty thousand gallons less spirits were consumed in the first nine months of the present year than in the corresponding months of the last thus showing that any occupation of mind or body is incompatible with intemperate habits, for drunkenness is essentially the vice of idleness, or want of something better to do. Of the scurf trade among the rubbish carters Before proceeding to treat of the cheap or scurf labourers among the rubbish carters, I shall do as I have done in connection with the casual labourers of the same trade, say a few words on that kind of labour in general, both as to the means by which it is usually obtained, and as to the distinctive qualities of the scurf or low priced labourers. For experience teaches me that the mode by which labour is cheapened is more or less similar in all trades, and it will therefore save much time and space if I hear as with the casual labourers, give the general facts in connection with this part of my subject. In the first place, then, there are but two direct modes of cheapening labour, namely, 1. by making the workmen do more work for the same pay, 2. by making them do the same work for less pay. The first of these modes is what is technically termed driving, especially when effected by compulsory overwork, and it is called the economy of labour when brought about by more elaborate and refined processes such as the division of labour the large system of production the invention of machinery and the temporary as contradistinguished from the permanent mode of hiring each of these modes of making workmen do more work for the same pay can have but the same depressing effect on the labour market for not only is the rate of remuneration or ratio of the work to the pay reduced when the operative is made to do a greater quantity of work for the same amount of money. But unless the means of disposing of the extra products be proportionately increased, it is evident that just as many workmen must be displaced thereby as the increased term or rate of working exceeds the extension of the markets. That is to say, if 4,000 workpeople be made to produce each twice as many as formerly, either by extending the hours of labour or increasing their rate of labouring, then if the markets or means of disposing of the extra products be increased only one-half, 1,000 hands must, according to Cocker, be deprived of their ordinary employment, and these competing with those who are in work, will immediately tend to reduce the wages of the trade generally so that not only will the rate of wages be decreased since each will have more work to do but the actual earnings of the workmen will be diminished likewise of the economy of labour itself as a means of cheapening work there is no necessity for me to speak here it is indeed generally admitted that to economise labour without proportionally extending the markets for the products of such labour is to deprive a certain number of workmen of their ordinary means of living, and under the head of casual labour so many instances have been given of this principle that it would be wearisome to the reader were I to do other than allude to the matter at present. There are, however, several other means of causing a workman to do more than his ordinary quantity of work. These are, 1. By extra supervision, when the workmen are paid by the day. Of this mode of increased production, an instance has already been cited in the account of the strapping shops, given at page 304, volume 2. 2. By increasing the workman's interest in his work, as in work, where the payment of the operative is made proportional to the quantity of work done by him. Of this mode, examples have already been given at page 303, volume 2. 3. By large quantities of work given out at one time, as in lump work and contract work. 4. By the domestic system of work, or giving out materials to be made up at the homes of the workpeople. 5. By the middleman system of labour. 6. By the prevalence of small masters. 7 by a reduced rate of pay, as forcing operatives to labour both longer and quicker, in order to make up the same amount of income. Of several of these modes of work, I have already spoken, citing facts as to their pernicious influence upon the greater portion of those trades where they are found to prevail. I have already shown how, by extra supervision, by increased interest in the work, as well as by decreased pay, operatives can be made to do more work than they otherwise would, and so be the cause, unless the market be proportionately extended, of depriving some of their fellow labourers of their fair share of employment. It now only remains for me to set forth the effect of those modes of employment which have not yet been described, namely, the domestic system, the middleman system, and the contract and lump system, as well as the small master system of work. Let me begin with the first of the last-mentioned modes of cheapening labour, namely the domestic system of work. I find by investigation that in trades where the system of working on the master's premises has been departed from and a man is allowed to take his work home, there is invariably a tendency to cheapen labour. These home-workers, whenever opportunity offers, will use other men's ill-paid labour or else employ the members of their family to enhance their own profits. The domestic system moreover, naturally induces overwork and Sunday work, as well as tends to change journeymen into trading operatives, living on the labour of their fellow workmen. When the work is executed off the master's premises, of course there are neither definite hours nor days for labour, and the consequence is the generality of home workers labour early and late, Sundays as well as work-days, availing themselves at the same time of the cooperation of their wives and children. Thus the trade becomes overstocked with workpeople by the introduction of a vast number of new hands into it, as well as by the overwork of the men themselves, who thus obtain employment. When I was among the tailors, I received from a journeyman to whom I was referred by the trade society, as the one best able to explain the cause of the decline of that trade the following lucid account of the evils of this system of labour the principal cause of the decline of our trade is the employment given to workmen at their own homes or in other words to the sweaters the sweater is the greatest evil in the trade as the sweating system increases the number of hands to an almost incredible extent wives sons daughters and extra women all working long days that is labouring from sixteen to eighteen hours per day and sundays as well by this system two men obtain as much work as would give employment to three or four men working regular hours in the shop consequently the sweater being enabled to get the work done by women and children at a lower price than the regular workmen obtains the greater part of the garments to be made while men who depend upon the shop for their living are obliged to walk about idle a greater quantity of work is done under the sweating system at a lower price i consider that the decline of my trade dates from the change of day-work into piece-work according to the old system the journeyman was paid by the day and consequently must have done his work under the eye of his employer it is true that work was given out by the master before the change from day-work to piece-work was regularly acknowledged in the trade but still it was morally impossible for work to be given out and not be paid by the piece. Hence I date the decrease in the wages of the workman from the introduction of piecework, and giving out garments to be made off the premises of the master. The effect of this was, that the workman making the garment, knowing that the master could not tell whom he got to do his work for him, employed women and children to help him, and paid them little or nothing for their labour. This was the beginning of the sweating system the workmen gradually became transformed from journeymen into middlemen, living by the labour of others. Employers soon began to find that they could get garments made at a less sum than the regular price, and those tradesmen who were anxious to force their trade by underselling their more honourable neighbours readily availed themselves of this means of obtaining cheap labour. The middleman system of work is so much akin to the domestic system, of which indeed it is but a necessary result, that it forms a natural addendum to the above. Of this indirect mode of employing workmen, I said in the Chronicle when treating of the timber porters at the docks, The middleman system is the one crying evil of the day, whether he goes by the name of sweater, chambermaster, lumper, or contractor. It is this trading operative who is the great means of reducing the wages of his fellow working men. To make a profit out of the employment of his brother operatives, he must of course obtain a lower class, and consequently cheaper labour. Hence it becomes a business with him to hunt out the lowest grades of working men, that is to say, those who are either morally or intellectually inferior in the craft, the drunken, the dishonest, the idle, the vagabond, and the unskillful. These are the instruments that he seeks, because these, being unable to obtain employment at the regular wages of the sober, honest, industrious, and skilful portion of the trade, he can obtain their labour at a lower rate than what is usually paid. Hence drunkards, tramps, men without character or station, apprentices, children, all suit him. Indeed, the more degraded the labourers, the better they answer his purpose, for the cheaper he can get their work, and consequently, the more he can make out of it. "'Boy labour, or thief labor," said a middleman, on a large scale, to me, "'what do I care so long as I can get my work done cheap?' That this seeking out of cheap and inferior labour really takes place, and is a necessary consequence of the middleman system— we have merely to look into the conditions of any trade where it is extensively pursued. I have shown in my account of the tailor's trade, printed in the Chronicle, that the wives of the sweaters not only parade the streets of London on the lookout for youths raw from the country, but that they make periodical trips to the poorest provinces of Ireland in order to obtain workmen at the lowest possible rate i have shown moreover that foreigners are annually imported from the continent for the same purpose and that among the chambermasters in the shoe trade the child market at bethnal green as well as the workhouses are continually ransacked for the means of obtaining a cheaper kind of labour all my investigations go to prove that it is chiefly by means of this middleman system that the wages of the working men are reduced it is this contractor this trading operative who is invariably the prime mover in the reduction of the wages of his fellow-workmen he uses the most degraded of the class as a means of underselling the worthy and skilful labourers and of ultimately dragging the better down to the abasement of the worst he cares not whether the trade to which he belongs is already overstocked with hands for be those hands as many as they may and the ordinary wages of his craft down to bare subsistence point it matters not a jot to him he can live solely by reducing them still lower and so he immediately sets about drafting or importing a fresh and cheaper stock into the trade if men cannot subsist on lower prices then he takes apprentices or hires children if women of chastity cannot afford to labour at the price he gives then he has recourse to prostitutes or if workmen of character and worth refuse to work at less than the ordinary rate then he seeks out the moral refuse of the trade those whom none else will employ or else he flies to find labour meet for his purpose to the workhouse and the gaol backed by this cheap and refuse labour he offers his work at lower prices and so keeps on reducing and reducing the wages of his brethren until all sink in poverty wretchedness and vice go where we will look into whatever poorly paid craft we please we shall find this trading operative this middleman or contractor at the bottom of the degradation the contract system or lump work as it is called is but a corollary as it were of the foregoing For it is an essential part of the middleman system that the work should be obtained by the trading operative in large quantities, so that those upon whose labour he lives should be kept continually occupied, and the more, of course, that he can obtain work for, the greater his profit. When a quantity of work, usually paid for by the piece, is given out at one time, the natural tendency is for the piece-work to pass into lump-work, that is to say, If there be in a trade a number of distinct parts, each requiring perhaps, from the division of labour, a distinct hand for the execution of it, or if each of these parts bear a different price, it is frequently the case that the master will contract with some one workman for the execution of the whole, agreeing to give a certain price for the job in the lump, and allowing the workman to get whom he pleases to execute it. This is the case with the piece-working masters in the coach-building trade. But it is not essential to the contract or lump system of work that other hands should be employed, the main distinction between it and piece-work being that the work is given out in large quantities and a certain allowance or reduction of price effected from that cause alone. It is this contract or lump work which constitutes the great evil of the carpenters, as well as of many other trades, And as in those crafts, so in this, we find that the lower the wages are reduced, the greater becomes the number of trading operatives, or middlemen. For it is when workmen find the difficulty of living by their labour increased, that they take to scheming and trading upon the labour of their fellows. In the slop trade, where the pay is the worst, these creatures abound the most. And so in the carpenter's trade, where the wages are the lowest, as among the speculative builders there the system of contracting and subcontracting is found in full force of this contract or lump work i received the following account from the foreman to a large speculating builder when i was inquiring into the condition of the london carpenters the way in which the work is done is mostly by letting and subletting The masters usually prefer to let work, because it takes all the trouble off their hands. They know what they are to get for the job, and of course, they let it as much under that figure as they possibly can, all of which is clear gain, without the least trouble. How the work is done or by whom, it's no matter to them, so long as they can make what they want out of the job, and have no bother about it. Some of our largest builders are taking to this plan, and a party who used to have one of the largest shops in london has within the last three years discharged all the men in his employ he had two hundred at least and has now merely an office and none but clerks and accountants in his pay he has taken to letting his work out instead of doing it at home the parties to whom the work is let by the speculating builders are generally working men and these men in their turn look out for other working men who will take the job cheaper than they will and so i leave you sir and the public to judge what the party who really executes the work gets for his labour and what is the quality of work that he is likely to put into it the speculating builder generally employs an overlooker to see that the work is done sufficiently well to pass the surveyor that's all he cares about whether it's done by thieves or drunkards or boys it's no matter to him The overlooker, of course, sees after the first party to whom the work is let, and this party in his turn looks after the several hands that he has sublet it to. The first man who agrees to take the job takes it in the lump, and he again lets it to others in the piece. I have known instances of its having been let again a third time, but this is not usual. The party who takes the job in the lump, from the speculator, usually employs a foreman, whose duty it is to give out the materials and to make working drawings the men to whom it is sublet only find labour while the lumper or first contractor agrees for both labour and materials it is usual in contract work for the first party who takes the job to be bound in a large sum for the due and faithful performance of his contract he then in his turn finds out a subcontractor who is mostly a small builder Who will also bind himself that the work shall be properly executed and there the binding ceases those party to whom the job is afterwards let or sublet employing foremen or overlookers to see that their contract is carried out the first contractor has scarcely any trouble whatsoever he merely engages a gentleman who rides about in a gig to see that what is done is likely to pass muster the subcontractor has a little more trouble and so it goes on as it gets down and down. Of course, I need not tell you that the first contractor, who does the least of all, gets the most of all, while the poor wretch of a working man, who positively executes the job, is obliged to slave away every hour, night after night, to get a bare living out of it. And this is the contract system. A tradesman or a speculator will contract for a certain sum, to complete the skeleton of a house and render it fit for habitation. He will sublet the flooring to some working joiner, who will in very many cases take it on such terms as to allow himself, by working early and late, the regular journeyman's wages of 30 shillings a week, or perhaps rather more. Now this subcontractor cannot complete the work within the requisite time by his own unaided industry, and he employs men to assist him, often subletting again, and such assistant men will earn perhaps but four shillings a day. It is the same with the doors, the staircases, the balustrades, the window frames, the room skirtings, the closets, in short, all parts of the building. The subletting is accomplished without difficulty. Old men are sometimes employed in such work, and will be glad of any remuneration to escape the workhouse while stronger workmen are usually sanguine, that by extra exertion, though the figure is low, they may make a tidy thing out of it after all. In this way, labour is cheapened. Lump work, piece work, work by the job, are all portions of the contract system. The principle is the same. Here is this work to be done. What will you undertake to do it for? In number after number of the builder, will be found statements headed blind builders. One firm, responding to an advertisement for estimates of the building of a church, sends in an offer to execute the work in the best style for £5,000. Another firm may offer to do it for somewhere about £3,000. The first mentioned firm would do the work well, paying the honourable rate of wages. The underworking firm must resort to the scamping and subletting system I have alluded to it appears that the building of churches and chapels of all denominations is one of the greatest encouragements to slop or scamp or underpaid work the same system prevails in many trades with equally pernicious effects if you will allow me says a correspondent i would state that there is one cause of hardship and suffering to the labouring or handicraftsman which to my mind is far more productive of distress and poor grinding than any other or than all the causes put together i allude to the contract system and especially in reference to printing depend upon it sir the father of wickedness himself could not devise a more malevolent or dishonest course than that now very generally pursued by those who should be of all others the friends of the poor and working man the government and the great west end clubs have reduced their transactions to such a low level in this respect that it seems to be the only question with them who will work lowest or supply goods at the lowest figure and this too totally irrespective of the circumstance whether it may not reduce wages or bankrupt the contractor no matter whether a party who has executed the work required for years be noted for paying a fair and remunerating price to his workmen or sub-tradesmen and bears the character of a responsible and trustworthy man all this is as nothing for somebody who may be for aught that is cared deficient in all these points will do what is needful at so much less and then unless willing to reduce the wages of his workpeople the long-employed tradesman has but the alternative of losing his business or cheating his creditors and then to give a smack to the whole affair the stationary office of the government or the committee of the club will congratulate themselves and their auditors on the fact that a diminution in expenses has been effected a result commemorated perhaps by an addition of salary to the officials in the former case and of a cordial vote of thanks in the latter i do not write without book i can assure you on these matters for i have long and earnestly watched the subject and could fill many a page with the details Of the ruinous effects of the contract system in connection with the army clothing, Mr. Pierce, the army clothier, gave the following evidence before the Select Committee on Army and Navy Appointments. When the contract for Soldiers Great Coats was opened, Mr. Maberly took it at the same price, 13 shillings, in December 1808. This shows the effect of wild competition. In February following, Esdales House, who were accoutrement makers, and not clothiers, got knowledge of what was Mr Maberley's price, and they tendered at twelve shillings sixpence halfpenny, a month afterwards. It was evidently then a struggle for the price, and how the quality the least good, if we may use such a term, could pass. Mr Maberly did not like to be outbidden by Estales. Estales stopped subsequently, and Mr Maberley bid twelve shillings sixpence three months after and mr dixon bid again and got the contract for eleven shillings threepence in october and in december of that year another public tender took place and messrs a and d cock took it at eleven shillings fivepence halfpenny, and they subsequently broke it went on in this sort of way changing hands every two or every three months by bidding against each other presently though it was calculated that the great coat was to wear four years it was found that those great coats were so inferior in quality that they wore only two years, and representations were accordingly made to the commander-in-chief, when it was found necessary that great care should be taken to go back to the original good quality that had been established by the Duke of York. End Mr. Shaw, another army clothier, and a gentleman with whose friendship I am proud to say I have been honoured since the commencement of my inquiries, a gentleman actuated by the most kindly and Christian impulses, and of whom the workpeople speak in terms of the highest admiration and regard. This gentleman, impressed with a deep sense of the evils of the contract system to the underpaid and overworked operatives of his trade, addressed a letter to the chairman of the Committee on Army, Navy and Ordnance Estimates, from which the following are extracts. my lord my object more particularly is to request your lordship will submit to the committee as an evidence of the evils of contracts the great coat sent herewith made similar to those supplied to the army and i would respectfully appeal to them as men gentlemen as christians whether fivepence the price now being given to poor females for making up these coats is a fair and just price for six, seven, and eight hours' work. My lord, the misery amongst the workpeople is most distressing, of a mass of people willing to work, who cannot obtain it, and of a mass, especially women, most iniquitously paid for their labour, who are in a state of oppression disgraceful to the legislature, the government, the church, and the consuming public. I would therefore most humbly and earnestly call upon your lordship and the other members of the committee to recommend an immediate stop to be put to the system of contracting now pursued by the different government departments as being one of false economy as a system most oppressive to the poor and being most injurious in every way to the best interests of the country End quote in another place the same excellent gentleman says quote, "i could refer to the screwing down of other things by the government authorities but the above will be sufficient to show how cruelly the work people employed in making up this clothing are oppressed and some of the men will tell you they are tired of life last week i found one man making a country police coat who said his wife and child were out begging" End quote. The last mentioned of the several modes of cheapening labour is the small master system of work. That is to say, the operatives taking to make up materials on their own account rather than for capitalist employers. In every trade where there are small masters, trades into which it requires but little capital to embark, there is certain to be a cheapening of labour. Such a man works himself, and to get work, to meet the exigencies of the rent and the demands of the collectors of the parliamentary and parochial taxes, he will often underwork the very journeyman whom he occasionally employs, doing the job in such cases with the assistance of his family and apprentices, at a less rate of profit than the amount of journeyman's wages. Concerning these garret masters, I said, when treating of the cabinet trade in the Chronicle, quote, the cause of the extraordinary decline of wages in the cabinet trade, even though the hands decreased and the work increased to an unprecedented extent, will be found to consist in the increase that has taken place within the last 20 years of what are called garret masters in the cabinet trade. These garret masters are a class of small trade-working masters, the same as the chamber masters in the shoe trade, supplying both capital and labour. They are in manufacture what the peasant proprietors are in agriculture, their own employers and their own workmen. There is, however, this one marked distinction between the two classes. The garret master cannot, like the peasant proprietor, eat what he produces. The consequence is that he is obliged to convert each article into food immediately he manufactures it, no matter what the state of the market may be the capital of the garret master being generally sufficient to find him in materials for the manufacture of only one article at a time, and his savings being but barely enough for his subsistence while he is engaged in putting those materials together, he is compelled, the moment the work is completed, to part with it for whatever he can get. He cannot afford to keep it even a day, for to do so is generally to remain a day unfed hence if the market be at all slack he has to force a sale by offering his goods at the lowest possible price what wonder then that the necessities of such a class of individuals should have created a special race of employers known by the significant name of slaughter-house men or that these being aware of the inability of the garret-masters to hold out against any offer no matter how slight a remuneration it affords for their labour should continually lower and lower their prices, until the entire body of the competitive portion of the cabinet trade is sunk into utter destitution and misery. Moreover, it is well known how strong is the stimulus among peasant proprietors, or indeed any class working for themselves, to extra production. So it is indeed with the garret masters. Their industry is almost incessant, and hence a greater quantity of work is turned out by them, and continually forced into the market, than there would otherwise be. What though there be a brisk and a slack season in the cabinet-maker's trade, as in the majority of others. Slack or brisk, the garret masters must produce the same excessive quantity of goods. In the hope of extricating himself from his overwhelming poverty, he toils on, producing more and more, and yet the more he produces the more hopeless does his position become for the greater the stock that he thrusts into the market the lower does the price of his labour fall until at last he and his whole family work for less than half what he himself could earn a few years back by his own unaided labour the small master system of work leads like the domestic system with which indeed it is intimately connected, to the employment of wives, children and apprentices as a means of assistance and extra production, for as the prices decline, so do the small masters strive by further labour to compensate for their loss of income. End of section 62